Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I am vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. And I have looked forward for some time to our book forum today on what Washington gets wrong, the unelected officials who actually run the government, and their misconceptions about the American people. There's many reasons for that, of course. It's hard to imagine right now, uh, as we are about three weeks after the election that brought President-elect uh, Donald Trump to, to the uh, brink of office, a book that might be more timely for this moment in America. And indeed, uh, the turnout today for our book forum suggests that there's widespread interest in uh, the content of this book. I have to say also, um, I'm delighted to uh, have today as uh, speakers, both one of the authors, Ben Ginsburg and Don Kettle, uh, longtime friends of mine, uh, who we've all worked in the political science vineyards, and Jennifer Bachner, a new friend here. Um, so indeed, Donald Trump raises the question, and a question that has been on the American agenda for some time, which is a deep dissatisfaction with much of the country that is outside the Beltway. I remember one time, and it may have been this fall, sitting around thinking after having lived in Washington for some, uh, really about 25 years now, you know the life out there may really be different. Um, and this is from a person who works at the Cato Institute, who has a sort of professional uh, commitment to the idea that life is, out, is better and indeed out there is different. And indeed we are, uh, in this time, there's a larger picture too along, that goes alongside with Donald Trump's victory. And that larger conception is that we have uh, attained a position in the constitutional order that I think is rather different than the one that we started with in 1787. That is, we have a much stronger presidency, a much stronger executive branch, and a much stronger judiciary than was originally intended. And what is uh, weaker is, on the one hand, the classic representative institution, of Congress, uh, and also one could say the states play a, a, a weaker role than one would expect. So Washington counts a lot more, and our authors today decide it, and it's very striking that other people haven't done this so much, that our authors decided to see what exactly the Washington elite thought about the rest of America. And as you can, say, you can see from the subtitle, uh, it turns out that the Washington elite have misconceptions about the American people. Uh, and maybe even some libertarians have misconceptions about the American people. We'll, maybe we'll return to that issue. Uh, let me begin today by saying a, a brief bit of administration. We will have our, hear from our authors and a commenter, uh, Professor Kettle. Uh, and around about one or so, we'll begin to take your questions and answers and, uh, uh, on these issues. So I'll begin by introducing uh, our authors, and then we'll hear from them. Uh, Benjamin Ginsburg is a David Bernstein Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Hopkins Center for Advanced Governmental Studies here in Washington. His research interests include American politics, Jewish, Jewish history, higher education policy, and the societal impact of war and violence. He is the author, co-author, or editor of 24 books, 24 books, wow, including, of course, What Washington Gets Wrong, 
and the worth of war. I should say also, Ben was referred to, you may have seen this in a Washington Post story recently, as a libertarian. So I don't know if what he's going to want to say about that, if anything, today. Um, the worth of war is not a title of a typically libertarian <laughs> book, I think. Um, his co-author, Jennifer Bachner, is director of the Master of Science in Government Analytics and Certificate in Government Analytics at Johns Hopkins also. Along with our current book, she is the editor of Analytics, Policy, and Governance, which uh, is along with uh, Ben is edited, and Kathy Hill, and will appear with Yale University Press soon. She also wrote the report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics, very timely undertaking and as the, these discussions go forward. Um, as an expert on government analytics and political behavior, she's been quoted or cited in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Baltimore Sun, Roll Call, Government Executive, and on federal news radio. She received a PhD in government from Harvard University. So Ben and Jennifer, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. Um, Jen and I are, are delighted to be here today, and we're uh, very grateful to John for organizing this, and also to Don for agreeing to serve as, um, as interlocutor. Um, you know, while I have the floor, I'm going to rant for a moment about the Cato Institute. Now, Cato, uh, th this, is a this is a misnamed institute. Cato was a rabble-rouser. He was the Donald Trump of, of Rome. He was against free trade, uh, and he, cut his, he attacked his enemies, Scipio Nasica, the head of the aristocratic faction, perhaps, I don't know, Scipio Romney and Scipio Bush as well. So I, I really think Cato needs to rethink uh, the name of the institute. Now that I've gotten that out of my system. <laughs> um, let me uh, turn to the topic at hand. You know, for many years, um, I've been annoyed at the various surveys uh, undertaken that, uh, that seem to seem designed to show that ordinary Americans don't know anything about government. Uh, you know, the one that, that I enjoyed most was one of those old Jay Leno jaywalking um, encounters where people are asked, were asked to name a Supreme Court justice. And a large number said Judge Judy. <laughs> now, first of all, this is a kind of an honest mistake, right? Because Judge Judy and Justice Ginsburg, no relation, you know, are both small Jewish women who went to the same high school in Brooklyn. They're both graduates of James Madison High School. So why shouldn't people get them confused? At any rate, um, one day Jen and I were chatting, and one or the other of us said, you know, how come no one surveys the government to see what it thinks about the people? No one's ever done this. Why not survey government officials to find out if they know anything about the American people? So that's what we did, and Jen will, will uh, discuss the details of the survey. Uh, but basically, we, we were able to um, get responses from about 850 government officials and members of what we call the policy community 
that is think tankers, contractors, the people who as a group are involved in the regulatory and rulemaking process here in Washington. So we asked them what they thought about Americans. Now, I don't have to uh, tell this audience, though I often find myself saying to students that everything you learned uh, about American government is a little wrong. Uh, most of what you think of as the law is not written by Congress and signed by the president. Uh, the Constitution's got this a little bit wrong. The presentment clause, forget it. Um, most of what we think of as the federal law is written by uh, federal agencies. And um, to a, an, a very substantial extent, these agencies operate without much guidance or directions, direction from Congress and the president. You know, the 114th Congress, the outgoing Congress, enacted uh, 150, no, let me get my, my numbers right here, 218 pieces of legislation, many of which were, were auditory. Uh, during that same period, federal agencies uh, wrote 150,000 pages of rules and regulations, many of which were very important, many of which substantially rewrote federal law. So for example, the Department of Labor uh, issued new rules and regulations under the authority of the Taft-Hartley Act. Now, I don't see anyone around here who was present when the Taft-Hartley Act was, uh, was enacted. Sometimes I feel that I was, but, but uh, you know, the, this was, when was, ta was Taft-Hartley enacted? 1936. So here we are, nearly a century later, the Department of Labor is still issuing rules and regulations pursuant to the act. Now, are these rules and regulations truly pursuant to the act? Well, no one knows. No one involved in the drafting of that legislation is still with us. Uh, and moreover, the federal courts uh, defer to agency interpretations of the law, as you know. Uh, there are many principles of deference. My son is an administrative lawyer, and he tells me not to talk about these things because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I know enough uh, to know that there are several principles of deference, and particularly the Chevron standard. The courts generally defer to agency interpretations of the law. So for all intents and purposes, the Department of Labor is writing new law nominally based upon some now ancient standard. So multiply this by many agencies, writing many rules, uh, and you have a government that is centered in the executive agencies rather than the Congress or the White House. Now, of course, um, the president plays a role in rulemaking. And since uh, President Reagan and since the creation of OIRA, now I bet this is a room in which everyone knows what OIRA is. No, Office of Information and Regulatory Assessment, which is uh, in OMB. And OIRA under, was created by the Paperwork Reduction Act. Uh, uh, well, what do you want? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, um, the uh, well, there's so many examples of this in Washington. But anyway, OIRA uh, was charged with um, reviewing the uh, agency's regulatory agenda 
to see to what extent the agenda was consistent with the president's agenda. But then under Clinton, OIRA's mission was expanded so that OIRA issued regulatory directives to the agency, agencies telling them what the president wanted in their agenda. And then under Bush, uh, you know, the Republicans had complained bitterly about OIRA's actions. But I remember when Bush came in, the incoming director of OIRA met with the outgoing director uh, of OIRA. I'm tempted to name these people. I won't name them. Uh, who at, the, at that time taught for us. So I said to her, how did the meeting go? And she said, well, it was an interesting meeting. I thought you know, that he was going to you know, condemn everything I did. But actually, he just had one question. He said, we were thinking of changing the names of these directives to regulatory prompts, because our party is against regulatory directives. <laughs> what would you think about that? She said, OK. <laughs> At any rate, so the president does have some impact on the regulatory agenda. But this impact is similar to the impact that Tocqueville described when he talked about the Roman emperor. He said the emperor has vast power, but his reach is limited. The emperor can only intervene in a small number of areas so that for the most part, the other agencies of government are in charge of everything else. And so the president issues a small number of regulatory uh, prompts. I want to get the wording right. Uh, and indeed, under, the, under Obama, Cass Sunstein was charged with uh, overseeing a look-back process in which the agencies were asked to uh, go back through their rules and regulations and excise those that no longer seemed current. Uh, this didn't get very far. Um, one might have predicted that. But at any rate, the president has some power here. But it's, it's like the Roman emperors. It's enormous, but limited in reach. Now as to Congress, of course, Congress has oversight powers. Um, and Congress also has something called the Congressional Review Act. So that any piece, any set of rules and regulations um, that, uh, or all rules and regulations, have to be submitted to the Government Accountability Office, have to be submitted to GAO. And if GAO uh, deems that a particular set of rules and regulations is major in terms of their impact on the economy, uh, Congress has 60 days to examine the rule and pass a motion of disapproval. Well, this hasn't worked out too well either. Uh, the only time that, because such motions are uh, subject to presidential veto. Um, and Congress, as, as you may have heard, has been quite divided in recent years. Uh, in fact, on many days, I don't think you could get uh, a motion of approval for the idea that the marigold is a pretty flower. So CRA has only come into action one time that I know of, and this is uh, with regard to the, remember the uh, ergonomics rules uh, that were uh, adopted just before Bush came in. And the ergonomics rules were presented to Congress. Congress disallowed them 
and Bush signed. I think that's the one and only time that CRA has actually worked. Otherwise, it's been a dead letter. Um, Congress does hold hearings. Congress does threaten administrators. It does intervene. But you know, political scientists call this fire alarm management. Uh, if someone rings the bell loudly enough, Congress will look into it. But again, most of the time, the agencies do their thing without anyone much intervening. So we have hundreds of thousands of pages of rules and regulations. So in many respects, we don't have congressional government. We don't have presidential government. We have government by the executive branch. So we uh, decided this is where we would look. And we, we found a number of interesting things, uh, which Jen will, will present to you. Uh, but just as an overview, uh, we found that members of the Washington policy community were not um, representative of the American public. That, that should come as no surprise. Neither is Congress. Um, members of the Washington policy community were whiter. They were better educated. They were wealthier than the public at large. OK. But since they're unelected, perhaps this, this makes more difference than is the case with Congress. Um, we asked our respondents some questions about their understanding of the American public. It turned out, now none of them named uh, Judge Judy as a member of the Supreme Court, but it turned out they were not quite on target in their understanding of Americans' uh, incomes, race, going down the list. Uh, they had a, an odd picture of Americans. Uh, and most important to us, uh, they didn't have much regard for the, the abilities of ordinary Americans to govern themselves. They didn't have much regard for the intelligence of ordinary Americans, for the significance of their views. And they didn't feel, for the most part, that the government should pay too much attention to what ordinary folks thought. In fact, they didn't think the government should pay too much attention to what members of Congress thought. They didn't feel the government should pay too much attention to the president. Who did the members of our sample think knew anything? Well, they talked to one another. Okay? They thought people like themselves knew what was best. Now, maybe they do know what's best. You know, when I go to the physician, I don't pretend to know anything about medicine. I hope they know more than I do. Sometimes I'm dubious, but I hope they know more than I do. When I need an attorney, I hope they know more than I do. Same with my accountant, who I'm sure doesn't know more than I do. Uh, but these individuals have a relationship to me, uh, which is important. They have a fiduciary responsibility to try to understand what I want, what I need, and to work with me to achieve those goals. If an attorney doesn't do that, they're ignoring their fiduciary responsibility, and you should fire them and go across the street and get another one. Same with your physician. But in the case of our policymakers, they don't seem to feel they have a fiduciary responsibility, and there's nothing much we can do about it. So this leaves us thinking about what, what could possibly be done. 
And we do have some suggestions, and I think we'll come back to those after Jen presents uh, the numbers. Okay. Hi, everyone. So as Ben indicated, we wanted to understand what the government thinks of the people. And in fact, that was our original title of the book. So we went ahead and conducted this survey where we uh, created a survey about with about 90 questions. And we sent it to about 2,400 officials and received about 850 responses. We obtained their contact information from publicly available directories. And we received a lot of responses from people who were sort of at the mid-level of policymaking. They had titles like legislative aid, program analyst, and policy analyst. For the civil servants in our survey, we were able to compare their demographics, uh, including age, gender, income, and education, to those published by OPM. So we know that our sample, at least with respect to the civil servants, is fairly representative. So a number of interesting findings emerged from our survey, as, as Ben sort of gave you a nice overview of. So we asked a lot of the officials in our survey about the circumstances of average Americans. We were interested in whether they know about the racial composition of America, the size of different age groups, and SES indicators like the home ownership rate and the educational attainment of average Americans. And in many cases, our officials didn't do so well, or at least not as well as we might hope they would have done. So for example, we found that 80% of respondents thought the home ownership rate was lower than it is in reality. And we think that the fact that officials have these misconceptions about the circumstances of Americans is pretty problematic, um, at least from a policymaking perspective, right? Because you would hope that policies would align with the real circumstances of Americans. We also asked officials about the policy preferences of Americans. And we found that, again, there were some pretty serious misconceptions. So here we see that a lot of the officials in our survey think that the average American holds a very different policy opinion than they do. And as I'll talk about more in a moment, this turns out not to be the case. You can see here, for example, that about 72% of officials think the average American holds a different opinion with respect to policies that aid the poor, and 67% think the average American holds a different opinion with respect to policies related to the environment. And again, as I'll talk about soon, I'll show you that, in fact, there's a lot more common ground between government officials and the average American than they think there is. We also asked officials about whether average Americans know anything about policy areas, um, whether they know a great deal about these issues or whether they know very little about these issues. And as you can see here, officials clearly think that Americans don't know very much about policies. And that's true even for the policies that you, you would think affect their daily lives, right? Like social security and childcare. For example, you can see here that about Let's see, 72% uh, of government officials think the public knows little or nothing about programs aimed at helping the poor. And more than 60% think the public likewise knows almost nothing about childcare. And across all of these issues, you can see that a very small percentage of officials think that average Americans know anything about these issues. 
So when you take these pieces together, we find that officials have quite a fair amount of disdain for the average American. And we think that one way this manifests itself is in their sense of what we call false uniqueness. So false uniqueness means that officials perceive themselves to be far more different from the American people than they are in reality. So the graph that you can see here shows the extent to which government officials overestimate their policy differences with the average American. So the red bars show you the number of policy issues where there is actual disagreement. And the blue bars show you the number of policy issues where there is perceived disagreement. And you can see, of course, that the higher blue bars are clustered on the right-hand side of the screen. We can see, for example, that 22% of officials think that they disagree with the average American on five policy issues, when in reality, only 3% disagree on five issues. And overall, we see that 76% of government officials think that they disagree with the average American on four or more policy issues, when in reality, that number is only 12%. So the key takeaway, of course, is that there's a lot of common ground. There's far more agreement between officials and average Americans than officials perceive them there to be, right? They see themselves as quite different from the average American, both demographically, of course, but also in their attitudes and opinions. And perhaps owing to this false uniqueness, we find that officials strongly believe that they should do what they think is best when crafting policy, rather than follow the will of the people. And of course, this should be concerning from a government responsiveness perspective. So here on this table, we see the percentage of officials for each policy area that thinks the government should follow public opinion, give equal consideration to public opinion and what it thinks is best, or simply do what it thinks is best. So with respect to policies that aid the poor, for example, only 12% of officials think that they should follow public opinion. And in other areas like social security and welfare, the numbers are 18% and 13%. So clearly the officials in our survey and presumably in the government at large, see themselves as clear trustees rather than delegates. Now, interestingly, we did find some variation among the officials that we surveyed. So as I, I noted at the beginning, we, we surveyed congressional staffers, civil servants, and members of the policy community. And here you can see that these groups turn out quite differently when you ask them about how much they interact with the public and the extent to which they receive feedback from the public. And clearly, the congressional staffers have the most interaction with the public and receive the most feedback from the public. And this is, of course, owing to the electoral incentives of members. But we think this speaks to the need for there to be more uh, interaction bet between civil servants and members of the policy community. So in our book, we talk about a number of possible solutions we think would help bridge this divide. So first, we think that government officials should spend some time outside of DC rubbing shoulders with those who they actually govern. Um, for example, uh, there are civil servants who have been in their position for many years, and perhaps it would be worthwhile for them to spend a rotation outside of DC. If you work in the education department, you could spend some time in a, in a state-level department of education or a school, perhaps. We also think that government agencies should be spread out across the country, and we think this should be done in a meaningful way. So we're not talking about small outposts here. 
but we think that the real policy-making centers of DC should be decentralized. So a great example of this is the Patent and Trademark Office. They've set up um, offices around the country, and this is so that patent examiners in particular can work closely with the inventors. We also think that there should be some changes in the curricula of public administration programs. So currently, these programs offer courses in what you, you might have taken in your public policy programs, uh, management courses, leadership courses, courses in uh, political thought, budgeting. But where are the courses that talk about how government officials can communicate with the public and can receive feedback from the public, and in particular make sense of the feedback that they receive from the public? And I personally think, of course, that analytics is key to making sense of, of a lot of the comments and um, feedback that is, that is received by these agencies. And finally, we talk about how perhaps civic education in America needs to be overhauled, right? Civic education for um, students in high schools, let's say. So perhaps less time should be spent on how the processes work and institutions work um, in theory and more time on how they work in practice. So uh, those are sort of the key empirical findings from our work. Uh, we think that, you know, obviously these findings raise some serious concerns, but that there are a lot of uh, feasible ways of bridging uh, the gap between the bureaucracy and the public. I'm going to, uh, it's not your turn yet. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I want to add a little bit to what Jen has said before I cede the floor. I hate ceding the floor. It's just not right. Um, one uh, area that, that I think is illuminated by our findings is the area of enforcement. You know, enforcement is a big topic in Washington. Uh, Cass Sunstein wrote a book in which he advocated nudging uh, as a mode of enforcement. Um, yeah, my mother used to nudge me. I hated that. Uh, but, you know, most regulatory enforcement in the United States is not nudging. It's quite harsh. It's quite harsh. Um, you know, many uh, regulatory um, acts, re many regulations um, are based upon or depend upon enforcement methods that lack mens rea requirements or in some cases, uh, or that, that have very low mens rea requirements, in some cases have a strict liability rule. Uh, which we would never stand for in an ordinary criminal statute. Uh, so we have cases, and I, I learned about many of these cases from Cato publications, so forgive me, uh, but we have cases where individuals find themselves facing, or in some cases actually imprisoned, for violating rules with, which they had no intent to violate, and rules that, that to most Americans would seem silly. Uh, one of my favorites is the case of uh, NOAA regulations under the Marine Mammals Protection Act. Um, and the regulations prohibit harassment of marine animals, marine mammals. So one poor captain of one of these whale watching boats apparently whistled at a humpback whale, hoping to attract its attention for the tourists. Well, whistling at a humpback whale is a federal offense. Uh, punishable uh, by several months in prison. Um, well, then it, things got worse. 
because apparently the recording of these events uh, was corrupted by saltwater. So this seemed to be a Sarbanes-Oxley uh, violation. So the result was that agents of NOAA, armed with assault rifles, uh, raided the headquarters of the whale watching company and the home of the owner of the whale watching company. Now, I don't know why they needed the assault rifles, but as some of you know, NOAA likes its assault rifles. Um, and, you know, this is still an ongoing case. So why, why do we have such harsh enforcement? I think it's precisely because the people writing these rules and regulations uh, are out of touch with ordinary folks. Uh, they don't see ordinary folks as being very sentient. They see them as needing not a nudge, but a shove. Um, so that, that's one issue. And the other is, uh, I want to pick up on something that, um, that Jen noted. We are big advocates of civic training. Now, Aristotle said that civic training is needed so that every citizen knows what it is to be both a ruler and a member of the ruled. Rulers need to be trained, and also ordinary folks because they have to understand the craft of rule. They have to be able to see what it's about. And I think in our schools, we just teach kids to be ruled. You know, we teach them that, that the citizens should vote and pay taxes, and not much beyond that. Uh, they might learn more from watching, uh, or they would have learned a lot from watching the election, but they might learn more from some of these TV series about the craft of rulers. Uh, uh, before I turn the floor, I'm going to turn over the floor to Don one second. Um, you know, I said earlier that maybe these folks know more than we do. Maybe they do. But the history of bureaucratic governance doesn't leave me with um, very much confidence that we are well off under it. The problem with bureaucracies in charge is that bureaucracies tend to micromanage. They micromanage because a bureaucracy has a sense of mission. Uh, I remember my old friend and colleague, Harold Seidman, used to always say this to me, Ben, they all have their missions. Uh, and uh, when a bureaucracy, a bureaucracy clings to its mission, you remember the, the admirals who went down with their battleships, a bureaucracy clings to its mission because the mission of the agency uh, is something that is central to the power of those who run the agency. If you admit for one second that the mission is out of kilter, that threatens the power of all those who are in charge. So bureaucracies, whatever they are, tend uh, to cling to missions and to cling to hierarchical management. And this, this never is successful. Uh, you know, the, we were talking about this in the green room. The uh, Germans had a, have a term called Auftrag Taktik, mission-oriented leadership, which means that the upper level set a goal and it's up to those actually working at the bottom to figure out how to do it. And that tends to work a lot better than these pyramids that, that government agencies tend to be comfortable with. The other day, uh, Jen and I both attended a talk um, by uh, a woman who wrote a book 
entitled The New Trail of Tears. And it was a book about the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs and their management of reservations. Naomi, Naomi Schaefer Riley. You should have her come. It's, it was a, it's a fascinating story because what she shows is that the Bureau of Indian Affairs clings to control of the reservations even though, even though all of the Indians on those reservations are desperately poor, even though levels of alcoholism, abuse, you name it, uh, it's out of control on the reservations, but the Bureau will not change its policies. It clings to control. And to me, this, this was taking any bureaucracy to its limits. Uh, I said afterwards, you know, this is my libertarian streak. Uh, this is what they want to do to all of us. Okay, now you can have the floor. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta tell them who he is. But I have to reply to you about Cato. Here at Cato, we, <laughs> the staff only follows Cato the Younger selectively, right? As you know, he uh, killed himself by disemboweling himself when he was about to be captured by Caesar. And it is true that a lot of my colleagues have their differences with the president-elect, but we're not ready, I don't right. think, too many of them to do that yet. Okay, so you can keep them Okay, thank you. Um, our and when I saw this book, I saw the piece in the time in the Post and Times Post. What, what does it matter? I instantly thought that the perfect commentator uh, for the book forum would be our commentator. We got Don Kettle. Uh, Don is a professor and former dean in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Partnership for Public Service, the Volcker Alliance, and the Brookings Institution. He's the author or editor of many, many books also, and monographs, including The Politics of the Administrative Process, a central textbook in this field, and The Next Government of the United States, Why Our Institutions Fail Us and How to Fix Them, uh, a book I particularly like if you want to study wicked problems. That's uh, a good place to start and the Global Public Management Revolution. He's twice won the Brownlow Book Award of the National Academy of Public Administration for the best book published in public administration. And in 2008, he won the American Political Science Association's Gauss Award for a lifetime of exemplary scholarship in political science and public administration. You can see why I thought he was exactly the right guy. He holds a PhD in political science from Yale. And he's a regular columnist for Governing Magazine, which is read by many people who work in uh, administration at the state and local level and the national level. So welcome to Cato, Don. We look forward to your comments. Thank you, John. Thanks for that introduction. And thanks especially to, to Jen and to Ben for having written what is really a terrific and fascinating book. As they both pointed out at the beginning, one of the things that's absolutely fascinating about this puzzle is that you would think that we would know more about the people who are in charge of so much power in Washington. But in fact, the kind of survey that they've undertaken here is not one that we've actually done very much at all. And so they have tremendous insights on this, and insights in particular that could not come at possibly a better time than now, because if there's anything we've established, it's that things are not good when we look at government, that we need to do a lot better, and that in particular, that we need to restore the connections between all of us in the country and the people who are in charge of trying to govern us. And so in terms of understanding what's really going on, this couldn't possibly come at a better time. 
And there's so much in this book, I could easily go on for an hour and a half, but I promise not to. But let me try to make just five points in particular that I want to try to explore a little bit. The first is the basic question of whether or not Washington is out of touch with the rest of society. And it comes as no big surprise to find that one of the big results that come out of this analysis is that the survey shows that that people who work in Washington really uh, both think that other citizens don't get them, and it's very clear that citizens don't get the people in Washington who make that power. What this really is about is is creating a kind of portrait of a world of tunnel vision. If you want to understand what's really going on at the core of the book, and I think at the core of what's going on in the middle of the Trump transition right now, is the sense that that too much of Washington not only has too much power, but also that so much of the power is exercised in tiny, narrow little tunnels that are often not connected either to each other or to citizens in general. And the the book does a great job of illustrating and demonstrating that. The, The problem here, though, is that as true as that probably is, it's unlikely that the people that are surveyed in this book are any more out of touch or any more out of sync than are the rest of us in the society as a whole. That in many ways, what we see is a portrait not only of government on the inside, but of the rest of society on top of that. This is a much, much bigger kind of problem. And much of what it is, as I think that the book suggests in many places, is that the the, the disconnect between citizens and those who work inside Washington is a reflection of the disconnect that citizens themselves have as well. Now, how much of this is really true, and how much of this is really new? The fact is that most of these frictions are a reflection of much of what we see throughout the rest of society, too. So is Washington out of touch? Probably, but probably not much more than most citizens are out of touch with Washington themselves. Second question. Uh, This question about contempt by Washington of citizens. Uh, One of the things that's fascinating, not encouraging, but fascinating about the survey that they've done is the fact that they found that Washington insiders have relatively low opinions of the trustworthiness of Congress and the president and citizens for the most part, too. But again, this isn't much different from the way that most citizens look at the rest of government, some of the most recent surveys. Uh, Number of people with trust in government, 19%. Trust in the presidency, a little bit higher, 36%. Trust in Congress, 9%. 9% having trust in Congress. Congress, in fact, is less popular than either head lice or colonoscopies. (laughs) It is hard to go anywhere with people with lower opinions of any institution than that that Americans in general have toward Congress. So if there is contempt among the members of the Washington community toward the governing establishment, it's not a whole lot different than the contempt that a lot of Americans in general have. As I've said, the situation is not good, and we know we need to do better, and we need to try to find ways of restoring these connections. Third point, and here's where things really get to be uh, not only much more insightful, but a whole lot more complicated, which is how much does this really matter? What difference does it really make if it turns out that citizens feel out of touch with Washington, they feel out of touch with the people making the decisions, The insiders in the Washington community feel out of touch with citizens. They feel some sense of disdain for the institutions that they serve. Clearly, not good, but what difference does it make? 
And there are a couple ways of trying to break this one apart. The first is that we really need to understand just how far Washington is away from citizens. And woven in underneath all of this is something that is a subtle but important change that's come into the way in which we govern ourselves over the last generation. Largely as a product to try to shrink the size of government and to try to make government less powerful, we've, we've pushed government out, we've contracted government out. So it turns out that there are a series of things that have come out of that. The, the first is that when you start looking at the, the size of the massive federal government, most of the massive federal government, in fact, are our friends and neighbors throughout the rest of the country. 85% of all the people who work for the federal government work outside the Beltway. So one of the th arguments is pushing the power out to citizens, but much of the, many of the people who actually work for government are already there. Figuring out how to try to connect the decisions better is a big question, but much of government already is out there in the community. The second thing is that we've tried to shrink the size of government by contracting more of it out, by, by shrinking government, by doing away with as many bureaucrats as we can. We actually have no more bureaucrats now than we had during the Kennedy administration because as we've expanded our functions, we've pushed more of the responsibilities out to the private sector. So if you look, for example, at the, the people who manage the Medicare and Medicaid programs, they're responsible, that agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is responsible for 25%, 25% of the entire federal budget. How much of the federal workforce do they account for? And the answer is 0.2%. So when you're talking about trying to connect Washington and policymakers with citizens, we've in many cases shrunken what it is that we have managing these programs so much that connecting policymakers and Washington insiders to citizens is only a tiny little piece of the problem because there's so much of the rest of the private sector that stands between us as citizens and the government that's in charge of serving us. I remember there's this great line, this great joke from a couple of elections again ago that there was a woman who had the sign saying, keep government's hands off my Medicare. And everybody said, isn't that silly? Doesn't she get that Medicare is a federal program? The answer is, on the one hand, clearly she did not. But on the other hand, most of the people who are on Medicare and on Medicaid never see a government employee. In many ways, government's hands are already off their Medicare because most of the responsibility for managing the program and for delivering the services is in, through this very complicated interwoven system that connects Washington policymakers through the private sector to all of us as citizens. The challenge here is that if we want to try to connect government more with citizens, we've already deliberately disconnected many policymakers and especially Washington insiders, from this process that connects with all of us. So if we feel disconnected from government, we feel that government's this huge, monstrous thing that's interwoven itself so much in our lives, 85% of the federal government's already outside Washington, and much of what it is that Washington does happens through this very complicated system where the people who sit in Washington are a long way away from all of us as citizens, deliberately, because we've tried to keep the role of government small. So that complicates this issue of civic distance, this issue that they've framed in this book, which is really a fascinating concept. The civic distance between us and government, in some ways, the connection for us as citizens with our government 
has become more complicated and more intricate and more indirect, because we did it on purpose. We thought it was a good idea to try to shrink the size of government, but in the process, is it's created this difficulty of connecting ourselves to what it is that government does. So the first point is Washington out of touch? Well, yeah, but probably no more than the rest of us. The second is, do people in Washington often have contempt for the broader institutions? Yes, and not much more than the rest of us do either. Is Washington disconnected from citizens? The answer is, well, yes, but we've done it on purpose. The fourth point is, how much does this really matter in terms of the ways in which government actually operates? And this gets down to a really fundamental debate that both Ben and Jen have talked about, which is, what's the job of the Washington insider to do? Is it somehow to, to apply their best judgment to exercise the oversight of the law, or is it to reflect the will of the people? And the answer to that, in some ways, largely depends on whether or not you happen to agree with the way in which they exercise the will of the people. But on the other hand, much more fundamentally, a lot of us would be really nervous about creating, on the one hand, the kind of large and expansive federal bureaucracy with the kind of regulatory power that Ben's described and saying that what we want them to do is to exercise and reflect the will of the people without the constraint of the rule of law. This is a really important challenge. This is something we've been fighting with for a really long time. But the fact is that I'm not so sure that we necessarily want people who have been granted such broad power to be acting on their own with what it is that they think that we as citizens want, as opposed to a system that holds them accountable under a rule of law. For better or worse, and it is true that we've got uh, federal administrators out there doing all kinds of things, some of which in the abstract we kind of find kind of crazy. But there are ways of fixing that through congressional oversight, through changing the law, by changing regulations, by doing a whole collection of other things, which we have in our power to do, should we decide that we want to. That is, we policymakers that we elect to represent us. So I, for one, am a little bit on the nervous side about a claim toward arguing that this matters because we have lots of people who have lots of power, and they don't necessarily reflect us because we want them to exercise their judgment about what they think we want. That makes me nervous about the exercise of power in a system that is based on the rule of law. Does it really matter whether or not a bureaucrat who's in charge of food safety knows what the unemployment rate is? Now, most of us don't either. Does it really matter to somebody who's running the air traffic control system about what it is that the, the overall balance in society in terms of economic growth might be? Probably not in terms of the way in which they manage the air traffic control system. Does it matter for somebody working for General Motors to know how any lock brakes work if what they're trying to do is to design a better radio system for our cars? At a certain point, what we really count on is delegating power to people within very narrow boundaries and hiring people who know more than the rest of us to do what it is that has to be done. 90% of all the seafood that we consume in this country is imported from abroad, which most of us didn't know. There are people whose job it is to know that. Most of us don't know how to recognize substandard seafood, unsafe seafood, by looking at it. We count on experts to do that. What we really want are people who know how to do that well. And it's that exercise of power and discretion under the rule of law, which is the foundations of the way in which government ought to work. 
and the way in which, fortunately, sometimes it does, which gets me to my fifth point, which is this basic question about government's performance problems. And to, to step back, uh, it is pretty clear that most of us, most of the time, don't like a lot of what it is that we see government is doing, because otherwise, uh, we would actually rate head lice as a bigger risk than Congress. But in fact, it's the reverse. But the problem is this, that, that, that we have a series of propositions that we're in the process of testing in a really tough, rigorous way in real time now as we are debating where the Trump administration is going to take us. A lot of government really performs pretty well, actually. And you can get yourself in a lot of trouble by saying that. But for the most part, if you think about how often we trust ourselves getting onto airplanes, and even though we don't like standing in TSA lines, the fact is that it works reasonably well that the air traffic controllers who control our planes once we get on are phenomenal. One of the things that I'm always struck by, I used to fly an airline that we could turn on Channel 9 and listen to air traffic control on your headphones. And if you want to hear something beyond the realm of your imagination, listen to what air traffic controllers do, controlling flights trying to land in O'Hare in the middle of a foggy, cloudy, rainy, snowy day. And we all have our problems with big government, but when I'm sitting there on a plane strapped into a piece of aluminum, Flying at 400 miles an hour, I look out the window, I can't see anything. I think to myself, now at least maybe one good day for big government. <laughs> we count on government doing that well. The error rate in Social Security is not measurable because the quality of what it is that they do is so good. Believe it or not, in the last year, there's an organization named Forrester which does research on the experience that individuals have in their connections with organizations. And the organization in the country with the second best improvement in the connection between themselves and their customers was the State Department and the people who issued passports. Second best in the entire country, outperformed every private sector organization but one. And here's where it is we get back to some of the underlying connections that Jen and Ben have raised. The reason why they did that is they stopped and asked themselves, what is it that the people we work with, our citizens and customers, need from us? So they developed Twitter feeds. They developed online systems. They developed regional listening sessions, a whole collection of things that all were designed to help people deal with this fundamental process called passports in a way that is friendly and useful, that people appreciated, that ranked them number two in the country in terms of improvement. All at a time when, uh, you probably know the answer to this trivia question, you can no longer take passport photos with glasses on for a whole variety of new security reasons. So people are now having to go through processes they haven't done before, and the people who manage this process did it well that connected with citizens, and that's what it is that we want. More fundamentally, if we're really interested in trying to fix these things in government that don't work well, uh, one of the things I, I did out of curiosity is I, I went to the, the list of the, the 32 programs that are on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. These are the 32 programs that are rated as having the, the highest level of risk of waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. Uh, this is bad. One of the reasons and one of the costs of this is waste of government money, waste of our money, waste of taxpayers' money, one out of every $10 in the Medicare program is an improper payment. That's not good. We can talk about the margin about 
a billion here, a billion there. That's $60 billion a year. And so fixing that is a pretty big deal. And so if you ask yourself, what are the things that we need to do to solve those fundamental problems that we all expect to work better? And the answer is that we need smart people who know how to, to bridge boundaries among programs of this big private sector conglomerate in charge of managing our programs. We need people good at performance and information technologies and people who have the right kind of skill sets for financial management and managing contracts. In, in short, uh, we need people who we in fact hire, to whom we can give discretion, who have the capacity and the expertise beyond what any of us could possibly imagine to do the things that we insist that we want done in ways that deliver the kind of services that we want the government to deliver for us. And this is where that tension between having people who represent the will of the people and try to discern it and do what it is that we think and they think the people want versus the people to whom we can delegate power within very strict grounds of accountability but who know how to do what has to happen. Because I know that when I get on a plane, I want to land safely on the other side, but I sure don't know how to do it. I know that when I go to the supermarket and buy a piece of salmon that says farm-raised, and I know it's probably not from the United States, and I want to be able to bite into it safely. I know that when I write my check for Medicare and Medicaid, that I want to make sure that program is managed well and where the resources are not wasted. I know I need people to know how to do it, and I know I don't. So in short, a large part of the problem has to do with finding people who have the capacity to do what it is that has to be done. And the risk of relying too much on hiring people whose job it is to reflect the will of the people is that we run the risk of undermining the competence we need to get government done well. It, this is why it is that the people who work for the passport office manage to figure out how to make themselves the second best improving agency anywhere, public or private, because they knew better how to connect with us. So it's not so much, I suspect, that we want people who think like us. We want people who connect with us. And that's the core of what it is we need to try to make government work. The, the real problem at the core of all this stuff, I think, is that it is clear, as I said at the beginning, that the government's not good, not as good as it should be. We need to do a whole lot better. And there's a sense that people have fallen out of touch. But the passport story, and the air traffic control story and others is a sign that, you know, in some ways we do well, or at least we know how to do this, if we understand what the basic issues are and how best to try to connect. The, the biggest challenge that we have in making that happen, and this is a, a fundamental question that Jen and Ben's book really helps to highlight for us, is that the line of sight between us as citizens and the people who serve us has become increasingly disconnected or broken, we feel not connected, and part of this is because we've done it to ourselves because of the systems that we've created. Some of it's because we have people in some federal agencies who don't feel the need to figure out how to serve our needs. Some of this is because we have a system that's just so incredibly complex. Some is because, quite frankly, our institutions that sit not very far from where we are right here now don't work very well. But we can make a distinction between these large global, boy, I sure don't like that and the way that it's happening, and I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore, and our ability to be able to restore the trust in the way in which we connect with our government and our government connects with us, transaction by transaction, citizen by citizen, program by program, and by focusing on that, 
And building the competence and the confidence in doing that, we're most likely to try to get at the problems, I think, that Jen and Ben have raised. They've done us a great service in framing these issues. And wow, is this a great debate. And I'm looking forward to having a chance to hear what all of you think now. Thanks so much. Let, let, I'm going to steal some of his applause. Um, we'd, we'd like to respond just a little bit. I mean, we, we're not um, uh, in complete disagreement with Don. I mean, I like the airplane to land, though I think a voucher might do it, don't you think? Um, but, you know, the question isn't so much um, should we have competent officials? Of course we should. And sometimes the contractors, I hate to say this, are more competent than the actual civil servants. But and in our survey, we find not much difference between the two in terms of their outlook and perspective. But the question is, you know, I, I, Don framed the question as, don't we want people who know how to do what they're assigned to do? But to me, the question is, what should they be doing? Uh, who should decide what the government's agenda should be? So we tried to answer that question as well. We look to see um, what ordinary Americans thought should be the government's priorities. And we looked to, we tried to compare that to the priority of actions by uh, federal agencies. We tried to compare the rulemaking agenda across agencies with the public's views and also the views of Congress. And we found some very interesting and disquieting things. So Jen, do we have that? Yeah, well, we asked, so let's see. We asked um, uh, the public what our, well, we took data that was available uh, with respect to what the public's agenda is in terms of their uh, policy priorities and what the bureaucratic agenda was. We looked at the, uh, the, the rules that have been passed by the bureaucracy, and we found um, that there just was not a very strong correlation, whereas with the, the correlation between the public's policy priorities and the president's policy agenda, for example, was much stronger, which makes sense. And But we think that there probably should be a stronger correlation, right, between what the bureaucracy is doing and what the public thinks the bureaucracy should be doing. Um, so, you know, we'd like to find ways to, to make that relationship stronger. Yeah, for those of you who have the book, um, if you look on page 149 and um, subsequent pages, what we, what, we try, what we show there is that when Americans are asked what their policy priorities are, what should the government be doing, there is hardly any relationship between Americans' views of what the government should do and government agencies' regulatory agendas. Uh, in fact, government agencies' regulatory agendas correlate very closely with what bureaucrats and contractors think the government should do. They don't correlate with what Congress thinks the government should do. They don't correlate much with the president's agenda. Um, so in that sense, uh, we have a government that is out of touch in terms of its actions. And just one other uh, response before I yield the floor. I hate yielding the floor. <laughs> you know, 45 years as a professor, I don't like yielding the floor. I just talk. Um, you've only been talking for about 25 minutes, so you've got another. Oh, I have many go, more go things to say. <laughs> oh, at least, at least. Um, you know, Don said correctly that, that Americans don't trust the government any more than the government trusts it. But I would say that there's a, a very important difference here. If we don't trust the government, that's 
an interesting finding, but not that significant. But if the government doesn't have very much regard for us, that's potentially more important because the government takes actions that affect us. So I would say there's an asymmetry here. Now I'll yield the floor. Well, you're going to have to get closer to the microphone next time. Oh, because of the, they'd get me? All right, yeah. sorry. It's okay. Uh, so we go to, All my now we're going to yield the floor. <laughs> now you're going to yield the floor. We're going to have question and answers. Uh, please raise your hand and wait. To, I'll call on you and uh, our authors and commentator will uh, respond here. If you want to direct it specifically to one of them, uh, please do so. Uh, otherwise, everyone will answer. Um, and wait for the microphone, which will come to you, because we want everyone online also to hear. And if you like, and please tell us your name and affiliation, though you may remain anonymous if you would like to do so. The gentleman in the back was first, I think. And by the way, I may be rude here by pointing at you and saying that person, but that's unfortunately the way it has to uh, be. Quick, quick comment and then a question. Uh, I'm Robert Shredda, president of International Investor, but uh, many decades ago, I, I came to Washington working for one of the larger banks, and I was uh, in a private banking role, and I was surprised by the number of mid-level federal agency employees that we would talk to who were retiring as millionaires. One of the key differences, and I don't know if your book addresses it, but if you really want to talk about a difference in their perceptions of the world, policies, et cetera, and the rest of America, it's the job security that they are guaranteed, the pay packages and the benefits that, that go along with their employment. This, this is what sets them apart more than anything else from the rest of an insecure uh, workplace America. Uh, and, and just for uh, to finish with the, the comment that if there was one other constructive way to perhaps measure these people, one, we all run into these people, you know, cocktail parties, et cetera. I call them the invisible men. I'm much more concerned with the federal employees who don't have a sense of mission. The only thing they want to do is as little as possible and get by. I run into far more of them than those who are serious about getting results. So why don't we look at the results of these agencies versus the costs? Obviously, we are doing more to look at the costs of some of these rules and regulations. But let's really do more to really measure the beneficial results. Thank you. Yeah, yeah let me respond just to, to one portion of what you said. Um, we do talk about this a bit. And um, we do so in the context of the, you know, national debate about term limits. Uh, the president-elect has, has revived the term limits discussion, uh, saying that he's going to push for a uh, constitutional amendment that would term limit members of Congress. Now, what's the average length of service for a, for a member of the House? It's eight years. Okay, that's the average which doesn't strike me as very long at all. Uh, and in fact, to term limit members of the House would do nothing more than strengthen the president, which I don't think is a good idea. The average length of service for a senior federal civil servant is 26 years. So if uh, we're going to talk about term limits, I, I would look here rather than at Congress. 
And I'll just quickly say that I think the question is interesting because it speaks to the issue of expertise, which is something that Don brought up. And, you know, thinking about what is it? Is it doing the same thing over and over again for 26 years, even if you do it well? Or is, you know, the 10,000 hours theory, right? If you do something for 10,000 hours, you're an expert at it. Or is it challenging yourself to stay on the cutting edge, right? If you're a Department of Ed official, is it living in Bethesda, sending your kids to Bethesda Public Schools and working in the Department of Ed and doing your job the same way you've done it for decades? Or is it getting out and seeing what schools are like around the country and perhaps changing how you approach policies related to public education? And let me make three quick points on this. The first is uh, to violently agree on two points and then but disagree on one. And in terms of salary differences, and this is a subject of enormous debate back and forth, but the best research is that, that feds for the most part are not overpaid by comparison to the private sector. And the, the research is pretty clear about that. There's some disagreements, but for the most part, that's, that's an established fact. But the other two points that are important is that we, we need to think about how to try to connect the work that people do when they, when they go to the job every, every day with the broader performance that citizens expect and to use that to try to drive the second piece, which is some fundamental changes in the civil service system. We, we need to try to get at that. We're in the middle of a fundamental debate, and the problem is, on the one, there are two things that we know we can't, we, we don't want. One is to try to go back to the civil service of the 1950s, and the other is to try to just throw everything out and to make everybody completely an at-will employee and pretend that it's somehow like the private sector and to allow political interference, because there's a reason why we created a, a civil service system back in the 1880s. But somewhere in the middle, we need a fundamental rethinking of how we hire, how we promote, how we maintain, and how we motivate people to make sure that they focus on performance. And that is one of the, the great opportunities that are in front of us right now. Well, you know, I think I agree with you. Uh, but I think everyone in this room knows that in many agencies, there are a reasonably large number of employees who spend their time filing job actions against the agency. Uh, it's impossible to fire them, so they're shuffled from agency to agency. Uh, fortunately, not, not many of them are in charge of airline safety, or your plane would not land uh, safely, but, but this is a problem throughout the civil service. And I think that, um, you know, I think the needle has gone too far in the direction of job security. I'm not advocating a return to Jacksonian democracy. Uh, you know, Jackson thought that any random American could be trusted to do governmental work. I'm, I'm a little dubious about that. On the other hand, um, currently an incoming president can appoint, you know, around 4,000 people. We have, um, you know, three groups of appointees. It adds up to about 4,000. Uh, I think it should be more than that. I'm not prepared to say how many, but I think an incoming administration, in order to secure uh, its agenda, has to be able to appoint more civil servants. Otherwise, the agencies dig in, um, and it becomes very difficult to change their uh, direction, their mode of action. And the examples are, are manifold. So... Uh, you know, I don't disagree with you. But on Although the I do disagree with you about that last point. Oh, you because do? if we increase the number of political appointees, we would never have leadership in place. The, 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 well, the next president is, uh, is going to be struggling 
for about 18 months to be able to fill the 4,000 positions that he's got. I'm not it's, sure about that. He seems to be on the next got, question. Uh, Arnold Kling here. Arnold, uh, on the, Arnold is a Cato adjunct and also runs the ASK blog where he frequently writes about federal personnel matters based on his experience as a federal bureaucrat. Uh, okay. The, <laughs> I wanted to bring the subject back to fiduciary responsibility and I always have to have examples in mind, so I'll just throw out, the, like, let's say the uh, overtime regulation example. I guess I'm not as worried about whether the regulators have that same priority for that on the agenda as the public or what that would even mean, but I think, to me, a disconnect would be the regulators not really understanding the impact of that. And I think the only way... I'll make a couple of comments. One, the only way that they they get understand the impact of regulation is from lobbyists, and that certainly raises issues. Um, and I, I and I want to quarrel with uh, Professor Kettle on the solution being somehow do it better. You know, get better people, do it better. Um, there are processes involved. And in markets, there's a process where if the customer is not served, as in the State Department not served, somebody goes out of business. State Department would never have gone out of business if they had not implemented any change. And uh, so to me, the, the issue of getting a connection between the public, getting a fiduciary responsibility and getting that connection has to do with the process and, the pro and having a competitive process, not with, I don't think the solution is just exhorting people to do it better. The problem is that in a lot of cases in which the government's involved, there's, there's not obvious competition and there aren't obvious private sector providers unless you create them. And once you do, then in some ways you just recreate all the same kinds of problems, but then have them one step removed. So I'm not making an argument against that because there's a lot more that we need to be doing in trying to, to try to create the right kind of incentives. But the, the challenge underlying all this is, uh, I think most fundamentally, first to figure out what we want government to do, which we're spending a lot of time ducking and focusing instead on trying to help government figure out how to do it better, which in many ways we don't do very well. And so there's two separate kinds of questions. And one of the things that's important to, to note, just as, as, as a, a warning about a simple resort to private sector competition as an answer to government's problems, is that you may remember I pointed to the, the fact that 10% of all Medicare spending is an improper payment. And the reason for that is because we've, in fact, already relied on the incentives that the private sector generates. And the problem in this case is that we have only 5,000 people throughout the entire federal government who are in charge of trying to make sure that our money is being spent well. So it's not an argument against relying on these private sector providers, but simply a reminder that relying on private sector providers doesn't necessarily eliminate waste. Well, let me, let me respond in a slightly different way. Uh, we were fascinated when we looked at our data to discover that there was one group that differed from all the others. They were similar in terms of um, demographics, educational background, and whatnot, but they differed in terms of their views, and these were the congressional staffers. Now, the congressional staffers are subject to competition. That it's, they're very conscious of how voters 
uh, view their bosses. They're sent to campaign. You know, they all complain, oh, we have to go campaign, but that's a damn good thing because when they go campaign, they rub shoulders with ordinary folks and they develop some, some sense of what uh, consumers, we call them voters in this instance, uh, actually want. So we don't need to replicate the, uh, the private marketplace. Politically, we never have. We've always relied on political competition to ensure some semblance of a relationship between what people want and what the government does. Uh, we call it electing the Congress. And the problem in, you know, when we deal with governance by bureaucracy, we don't, have a, we don't have private sector competition, we don't have elections, and we don't have enough, in my view, uh, in the way of oversight by political institutions. Um, lady here, I'd sort of just go around at random. Ah, that, that lady, yes, that lady. Um, Sorry. Hi, um, I, I don't think I'll give my name, but I will say that I worked for the federal government for 30 years. And I'm just astounded at what I'm hearing. And my question for all of you is, have any one of you ever work, actually worked in the federal government? Um, and I ask that question because I think that the picture you're painting here is, is really off base. Now, um, it's true that um, there's a lot of variation within the federal government. You know, there's bad apples as well as good apples. But I, I think you're drawing way too broad a brush. And I think that it would, ben would have benefited you before writing the book if one of the authors actually had spent time working in the federal government and your perspective might have been quite different than, than what I'm hearing. So I, I think that's fair, and I think that, um, you know, we certainly don't think that government officials have any bad intention or don't like the American public. Um, and in fact, I've talked to a lot of uh, people who work in government who kind of, who've talked to us about some new initiatives they're taking to build these bridges with the public. Again, to be fair, you know, in the past, I think it was much more difficult to receive feedback from the public and to make sense of that feedback. The government received a lot of data and they didn't really know what to do with a lot of it. So the example I like to give is the FCC's collection of three million comments with respect to net neutrality. So 10 years ago, they would receive lots of comments, not no, right, those comments would just sit in a proverbial box and, right, they collected the comments so they fulfilled their responsibility, but that was it. But today, they were able to use natural language processing to make sense of what all of these people had to say about that topic. So again, I think agencies are sort of using new tools to make sense of the information they're receiving and to find out what the public thinks. Right now, we have internet surveys, so it's a lot easy, easier to survey what the government thinks or what the people think. I have to say that I'm currently a, a part-time employee of the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm working on an Intergovernmental Personnel Act to help them with their organizational transformation. And uh, having said that, I'm also obliged to say I'm not speaking on behalf of the VA. What I'm talking about here is just my own views as uh, having spent the career in, uh, in research. But I'm, I'm working with them as they're trying to strategize over transforming the bureaucracy to provide better health care to veterans. And, I'm struck by the incredibly hard work that the people inside are doing at an incredibly tough, tough job. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and one of the ways that they're going about doing that is that, even though I don't think they read the book, is they're conducting listening tours out there 
in the hospitals where headquarters people are going out to listen to what the people in the field are saying about what it is that it takes to provide better care for vets, which strikes me as a pretty good idea. Lady right here. Wait for the microphone, please. So everyone can get your Kimberly Dvorak, San Diego 6. Um, my question is the incoming president is suggesting that he's going to put a rule in place that we repeal two bad regulations, as he puts them, and if they want to incorporate a new um, regulation. What's the plausibility of that? Is that something that you see as, as you know, something he can take care of? Well, it seems, um, you know, it's... Um Seems like a nice idea, but it's, it wouldn't work very practically. Um, you know, the, um, the Obama look back didn't work particularly. I'm sure every agency could offer several sacrificial rules and regulations, um, but whether they would um, become the equivalent, you know, be the equivalent of the proposed regulation, be very compli complicated. Someone would have to score them. Uh, yeah, to measure their financial impact. I think this would um, probably be a fruitless exercise. I think it's easy but non-productive that you could take a big 300-page regulation, keep that in place, and have two little tiny things that were two paragraphs long. Take two of those out, keep the big one, and not accomplish anything. So you can, you can keep scoring a way that, that, in fact, doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah. But to underline one of the things that Ben pointed to earlier is that there's this little organization that most people have never heard of called OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and one of the president's most important appointments is going to be figuring out who heads that agency. And not only to do what's called a look back, to look at the regulations that have been put in place, but to put in place a strategy to try to figure out what rules do we want, what new rules are we going to create, what are the standards and the bars that new rules are going to have to try to pass to be able to get them through. This, for what this administration has in mind, is an incredibly important job and and we've had a lot of debates so far about cabinet secretaries, but we first need to get in place a director of the Office of Management and Budget, and then one of the first things that the OMB director is going to have to think about is who's going to head OIRA, because it cuts right to the heart of the ability of the new administration to get at the, the spirit of what it is that the president's promised. Yeah, and just to follow on on this uh, point, both the president um, and speaker, the president-elect and Speaker Ryan, uh, have indicated support for some version of the uh, ill-fated Rhines Act. Uh, remember, under the Congressional Review Act, Congress, in principle, can disallow uh, rules and regulations. But the Rhines Act was an effort to turn that around and require uh, a congressional enactment of major rules and regulations so after a statute was passed and the rules written, Congress would get a second look. Um, now, this is a very complicated matter. The original Rhines Act was probably um, not, not uh, going to be very effective. But the idea of it isn't crazy. Uh, Congress needs to take ownership of rules and regulations enacted in its name. And, you know, in 1946, in my view, Congress passed the buck with the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, under the, under uh, APA, the agencies were given charge of rulemaking. And Congress needs to take a look at rules. It needs to, if you're, not, if you're going to pass legislation, don't say, well, the air should be pretty clean and the uh, administrator should do something about it. Uh, 
Congress needs to be forced to take ownership of its product. The lady next to the woman who just spoke. Hi, I'm Janice Walt Grenadier. I have a group called uh, the software I'm working on, Jam Justice. Um, we have a government elected officials and judiciary who all police themselves. We have the American public who believes the attorney general they put into place is actually to take care of their actions. We have whistleblowers who are tortured and marginalized. Do you think we need more attorney generals from what you understood, what you learned, that are working for the people in order to get fairness in the courts and with government officials um, in whistleblowing? Well, I think we need to strengthen the GAO. Uh, I don't think the Department of Justice um, is necessarily the right place to look. I think GAO is the agency that has uh, shown an ability to engage in oversight. You know, GAO ha even has secret shoppers. I bet the GAO secret shopper was on the plane next to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have run out of time, I'm sorry to say, but you can continue to ask your questions or uh, talk to the authors and our commenter as we go to lunch. As always, the lunch will be held on the second level here at the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the star, uh, spiral staircase at the front of the Cato Institute. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. And I would like to thank our authors and our commentator today for coming in a very good book forum. Thanks very much. <laughs>